So we get to continue our study in the book of Acts today. So if you have your Bible, you can begin finding your place in Acts chapter 9. Let me ask you, how many of you guys remember uh, the, the, uh, the game when you were a kid? I don't know if you guys played this, but I did. The game when you were a kid called Red Rover. Anybody remember this game? Raise your hand if you remember Red Rover. All right, so essentially, you have uh, a row of kids over here and a row of kids over here, and they're all holding hands very tightly, as tightly as they can. And this row of children screams to that side and says, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Billy right over, right? And Billy is the smallest kid on the team over here, right? That's strategic for this side because Billy has to let go of the hands of his team and he runs full speed and he tries to break through the arms of this team. Well, Billy is too small, right? So he doesn't break through their hands, so he actually has to join this team. And that's the strategy of the game is to see who can, you know, get everybody from this team to join this team. It's a fun game. It's actually pretty dangerous if you've ever played. Sometimes when Billy's not so small, it's really dangerous, right? But it's a fun game. Here's the point, though. Uh, The gospel reality is that God, through his grace, is constantly working to call people from one team to his team. And when we look at the gospel in uh, the book of Acts today, when we look at the story of Saul, that's exactly what we see. We see a, uh, a trooper, a valiant warrior for this team who is brought over into and onto God's team. So as you're finding your place in Acts 9, um, our study in the book of Acts, what we've been seeing is that Christ is continuing his mission Through his church. So through his people, we've seen him continue the mission of the gospel. Last time we saw how God sent Philip uh, all the way to catch up to a chariot that was headed back to Ethiopia to talk to the the Ethiopian eunuch. And when he got there, he discovered he was reading from Isaiah, the, the, the prophet Isaiah or the scroll and. Uh, Philip had that conversation with him. And what we saw is that this eunuch, who was about as far from God as possible, was brought near by the grace of Christ. He was far from God in his proximity to the temple in Jerusalem. We talked about how he had traveled over a thousand miles to get from Ethiopia up to Jerusalem. He was far from God in his heritage. You know, he's a Gentile. So he's not automatically part of God's people. He was far from God uh, because of his physical body. What we discovered last time is that a eunuch was not allowed in the assembly of the people. But by God's grace, he brings near those who are far off. Amen. That's what we talked about last week. And in the gospel of Jesus, what we said is that every barrier to the Ethiopian was broken down. Jesus is the barrier breaker. And we celebrate that in in God's saving grace for sinners like you and me. There were barriers for me to get to Christ, but he broke them down and came to me and rescued me. Well, in Acts chapter 8, 9, and 10, we're going to see at least three, at least three miraculous salvations. In chapter 8, Ethiopian eunuch. In chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus. In chapter 10, Cornelius. Each of these stories is meant to show us the far reaching and rescuing power of the sovereign grace of God. As we look to Saul's conversion today, what we'll see is that the grace of Jesus 
saves the chief of sinners. The grace of Jesus saves the chief of sinners. Years after his conversion, uh, he's going to write to Timothy, his protege, about the grace of God in saving him. And here's what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He writes, he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst or the chief. Saul had experienced Christ calling him from this team to this team. So Jesus breaks barriers and Jesus saves his worst enemies. Jesus breaks barriers and Jesus saves his worst enemies. I think it's easy for us to to hear that and think that I'm talking about someone else. And today what I hope is to stir in your heart that um, you are that enemy. Unless Christ has redeemed your soul, you are still an enemy of God. You're on the other team. And if God has rescued your soul, don't forget that you were once an enemy of God on the other team. So there are a lot of barriers that keep people from the true gospel of Jesus. Distance is a big one. With Ethiopia and the eunuch, we talked about distance, how how far from God he was. But did you know that there are still unreached people groups all over the world that have little to no access to the gospel? When I when I use the word unreached, I I don't mean um, Jimmy, who works in the cubicle next to you, who's yet to trust in Christ. He's not what we mean by unreached. Now, in a sense, he's unreached because he's unsaved, but he's not unreached because you're there with him. The gospel of Jesus is accessible to him through you and through the churches on almost every corner in our community. What I mean by unreached is people who are born and live and die having never heard the name of Jesus and not having access to him. There are 6,700 plus people groups in the world today with little to no access to Jesus. That equals over 40% of the world's total population. 40%. To put that in real numbers, that's over 3.3 billion people. Today, live in a place where more than likely they will be born, live, and die having never heard of the saving grace of Christ. These people are distant. They're far from God. It's long been a dream of mine to take the gospel to an unreached people and watch as Jesus build his church among them. I pray that one day we'll be able to do that together. But what about those who are near to God? So close to the truth. My grandfather used to say close really only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Anybody ever heard that? Uh, It's true as it relates to God. You can be really close to God and still be so, so far away. When we look to Saul, that's what we see is a man who is so incredibly close and yet so spiritually far. 
There is an eternal difference between being close to the truth and loving the truth. And thankfully, Jesus is the bridge. So, for example, where we live in this part of the world, there is a a church on almost every corner. So here's my big question is, does proximity to God automatically mean relationship with God? Absolutely not. Right. For example, people here are, are very proud to stand. A lot of people in our area are very proud to stand at a football game uh, for prayer. Um, but honestly, they really don't care much about praying. They just don't want their right to do it taken away. You say, oh, how do you know they don't care much about praying? I, I don't. But I wonder how much do they pray? Lots of people in this region, quote, go to church, but are content to not have any relationship with God outside of that one gathering every week. We could go on and on and on with a a list that uh, belabors this point. But my statement is this. and the, The thing I want us to really go home with today is this, that proximity to God does not equal personal relationship with God. Being near doesn't automatically bring you in. Closeness to truth doesn't mean trust in Christ. Well, that's the case with Saul. You know, he will later write to Timothy again and he will say that there is a way to have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. He knows that personally. He had found a way to be entrenched in the things of God, the scriptures, the ministry, the synagogue. I mean, this is a, you're talking about a church man here. He found a way to be entrenched in the things of God without knowing the Christ of God. Saul was so close to God in proximity and yet so far away spiritually. So let me just provoke some thoughts for us that maybe will hopefully bring you into this idea to let you know that. Probably all of us in the room struggle with this idea. Just a few thoughts here. We know that Jesus died, buried and rose again. But we fail to see how that matters in everyday life. I mean, it's good news for my past. He's died for my sins. It's good news for my future. I'm going to go to heaven. But how does the gospel matter today? I think for most of us, many of us maybe, it doesn't. You see, we've found that practical wisdom serves us well on our path to success. People even seek our advice. We're happy to give it. Life's pretty good, even without a personal close relationship with Jesus. We found that experience and education are actually better than prayer. Because pragmatism rules. So we just do what works. And prayer seems very slow. We've discovered that money can't buy everything, but it does buy most things that we want. And so we overcommit to work and our pursuit of the things that money affords. Meanwhile, commitment to Jesus is, well, meh. We've decided that life's too short to limit ourselves to God's rules and boundaries. 
So we take some, we leave some. I'm sure he'll be okay with that. These are just some examples, some of the way we rationalize and think. And in, in truth, it's evidence to the fact that we're okay with proximity without relationship. There's a way to be close to God and still be so far away. And Jesus warns that many people, many people, spending an eternity in hell will be very surprised to be there. In Matthew 7, it's a really strong conversation, but it illustrates that many will talk about their appearance of godliness, but he will declare to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. They'll describe all the things they did, and he'll say, but you didn't have relationships. That's a scary reality. And for some of us today, maybe we're convinced that we have a relationship to Jesus. But really, all we have is proximity to him. And I want to I want us to really examine whether that's the truth over our lives. If you're in the room or if you're joining us online in, in our region of the world, the problem is not so much unreached distance from God. It's nearness without relationship. Saul's barrier to the true gospel of Jesus is actually his nearness. It's his prideful certainty. He lived in a world where he was his own boss. He knew everything, it seems. His zeal, his intellect, his drive had led him to great success. So what would it take to break through to Saul? What's it going to take to break him down to show him his desperate need for Jesus? How would Saul come to see the glory of Christ? Let's look at the text. All right. Would you stand with me in Acts chapter nine? And we're going to read the first 22 verses together. The Bible says, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord sent to him in a vision, said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of of all those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Lord Jesus, we take your word and we ask you to wash us with it. Show us the beauty of the hope that we have in Christ. Show us the darkness of our own souls. And the deepness of your grace in rescuing us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we see in this text is the radical rescue of the the worst enemy of Christianity of all time. What we see is the man who started his claim to fame... You know, we're introduced to him in this book as the one who stood by approving of the murder of Stephen, holding the coats, nodding his head as they hurled their stones at Stephen and snuffed out his life. This is that man who from that moment commenced to try his best to stamp out the movement of the Spirit of God through the gospel of Jesus. But what he has seen is that no matter how hard he tries to stomp it out, this wildfire continues to spread. And so frustrated in Jerusalem, he endeavors to go to one of the places where it has gone and is seeming to grow greatly, which is about 160 miles northeast of Jerusalem to Damascus. And he's on his way to Damascus to try to stomp out the gospel there. Saul had set his sights on climbing up the ranks of power and prestige by stepping on the backs of Christians all along the way. He wanted to put an end to this movement. He thought he saw clearly 
But what we're going to see, what he's going to find out, is how blind he really was. The moment Saul meets Jesus is incredibly unique. Up to this point, we have seen Jesus in Acts chapter 1 ascend into heaven, give a command to his disciples, and then empower them to do that command through the Holy Spirit. We've seen disciple after disciple be empowered by God's Spirit to do miraculous things. We watched Peter, we watched John, we've seen Stephen, we watched Philip, all working in the power of the Spirit. And, and Jesus is working through his people. But in this moment, so from chapter one, we've not seen Jesus in person until right now. It's incredibly unique because Jesus himself interrupts Saul's journey. And in this moment of meeting with Jesus, blindness struck Saul's eyes. His ownership of personal wisdom and knowledge, the thing that puffed him up, made him who he was, was brought low. His perceptions of right and wrong, you know, he thought it was good to kill Stephen. Now all of that is shifting. Blindness would prove to be a good teacher for Saul. It helped break him of his pride. He proudly rode off toward Damascus but he had to be guided by the hand into the city. He was so in shock that he couldn't eat or drink. He just sat and waited. You know, seeing the light of the resurrected Jesus would be the most transformational moment in his life, as it is for all of us. Everything Saul thought he knew came crashing down when he met Christ. And in that moment, he realized Jesus Christ is the real Savior, and I am a very broken man. Every person who has an encounter with, a saving encounter with Jesus, comes to that same realization. I am very broken, and He is my Savior. There's a lot of details about Saul's conversion that maybe we cannot relate to. You know, Saul had a vision of Christ himself and a light that shined brighter than the sun. Saul was knocked off his horse, presumably fell to the ground. His eyes were blinded for three days until another man laid hands on him and scales fell from his eyes. So there are some things about Saul's story that are distinctive to his story. But there are some truths about salvation, about conversion that are across the spectrum that we learn from this Text. This account of Jesus saving Saul should teach us about our own conversion. So I want to spend some time there today. Here's the reality Jesus changes people. Amen? I mean, do we believe that? Because if we believe that, we look differently at our world, we look differently at ourselves. Jesus changes people, radically changes people. And here's the even deeper reality that I hope shocks us. There is no salvation without transformation. There is no salvation without transformation. David Platt uses the illustration that salvation is a bit like getting hit by a Mack truck. You know, going 70 miles an hour, you get run over by a Mack truck. 
He says there's something about that experience. You, you just don't walk away the same. And it's laughable. But he, he's trying to help us to see that encountering the risen Jesus radically changes you. Radically changes you. So what does Christ change about us? Well, we see from Saul that Christ changes your mindset. Christ changes your mindset. Saul thought highly of himself. He's very proud of who he was and what he had made of himself. He was proud of his heritage. He was proud of his hard work. He's so wrecked by Christ that even as we read the New Testament, there's uh, there's a different way that we connect to him, a different name. Saul uses the Hebrew name Saul. Right. And then in the New Testament, he uses the name Paul. And some would argue that that name changes. It's the same in Greek and Hebrew. But I want to give you some distinctives about it. The name Saul is is a name of stately honor. It's a Hebrew name is the first The name of the first king of Israel, a man who's tall and strong in stature. It's a name of greatness. The name Saul means we prayed for this one, right? It's it's this name that's high and great and proud. The name Paul, on the other hand, means little, humble, small. So even in name... Saul, or the apostle we know as Paul, experienced a great shift in mindset from proud to humble, from great to small. And immediately upon meeting the risen Christ, Saul realizes he's no longer in charge. Do you notice that in the scripture? Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the answer comes back. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Look at the next sentence. But rise and enter the city that you'll be told what you're to do. Isn't it interesting that the Lord Jesus doesn't hesitate to give commands to a man who himself is accustomed to being the authority in the room, who most recently we saw standing, nodding his head in approval of the murder of another man. But now, having met the risen Jesus, he realizes he's no longer in charge. He takes orders from a new king. He's no longer walking in his autonomy. He's walking under Christ's authority. He wasn't great. Jesus was. Paul writes to the Philippians about the change of his mindset in Philippians chapter 3 in verses 4 through 7. I want you to listen to what he says. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. And then he starts on a list of his accolades. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Saul says, I had it all. I was climbing the ladder, man. I was I was getting it done. I had all the success this world had to offer my heritage and my hard work. It was there. And then I met Jesus. 
And I realized none of that even matters. Christ radically changed his mindset. He realized he wasn't great. Jesus is. Jesus Christ alone is king. He will not share his throne. He will not share his glory. I love what John the Baptist said in John 3.30. Jesus had just begun his ministry and was baptizing lots of people. And some of John's followers were like, John, I mean, some of your disciples are leaving you and going to Jesus. And, and he's, you know, he's baptizing more people than you are. And it was this competition. They were stirring up envy and competition in the heart of John. And John responds in John 3.30. And I love what he says. He must increase. But I must decrease. That's the mindset of a person who's been rescued by the grace of Christ. He changes our mindset to where he must increase. And I must decrease. Jesus Christ alone is king. Christ changes your mindset and Christ changes your mission. Christ changes your mission. Saul was on a mission to destroy the church, to make himself great in the process. But Jesus takes his most vicious adversary and makes him his greatest advocate. From adversary to advocate. From murderer to missionary. From persecutor to preacher. I mean, this is, this is one of the most transformational moments in all the Bible. Jesus takes no prisoners. He just transforms persecutors into preachers. So the illustration of the Red Rover game, the reason that came to my mind is because... Um, when, when you get converted from this team to that team, the mission you had over there is totally gone. And now the mission you have over here, you own it completely. It's a whole new mission. You're on a whole new team. You have a whole new captain. And you own the mission of this team. And that's the way it is with Saul. I love how he recounts the story you know, this, this story of Saul's conversion is told three times in the book of Acts. And then all through the New Testament, he references his own testimony many times. But in Acts 26, verses 14 through 18, I just want us to hear how Saul, or Paul at this point, is telling King Agrippa what happened to him. And here's what he says. He says, when we had all fallen to the ground... I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on, upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things that you've seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, 
delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Isn't that incredible? This is the way Paul recounts the story. And yeah, he's standing before King Agrippa and this story is Seems slightly different in the details. He doesn't include Ananias being the one that comes to give him the mission. That doesn't mean they're in contradiction. It just means that Saul received the message through Ananias as it was coming directly from Jesus himself. I love that. He received a mission. And if we keep reading in Acts 20 and Acts 26, what we see is that Paul says... This was the mission that God gave me, and I have not stopped yet. He had great devotion to the mission that Jesus gave him. So let me say this. Has Christ changed your mission? I mean, have you truly gone from this team and fully committed yourself to this team? Has he changed your mission? Or is your mission relatively the same? Like, I want to I make as much money as I can make, build my 401k as big as I can, leave as much money for my kids as I can, and, and, and you know, at the end of my life, we'll call it a day. Is that the mission? Or is it as long as I have breath, I'm going to be a witness to my King Jesus. I'm going to talk about the grace of Jesus in rescuing me from darkness to light, in bringing me from enemy to friend, In taking me from murderer to missionary and so on and so on. Are you so captivated by the grace of Christ that it has become his mission has become your mission? That's part of the saving work of the gospel. When Jesus called his first disciples, he said, come and follow me. Faith, right? Trust me, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. It's included, right? The mission is included in the call. Christ changes your mission. So we would say that Jesus sends his witnesses. We've been seeing that all throughout the book of Acts. And at this point, Jesus has converted another one from the opposing team. And he's sending Saul out as a witness. So, Christian, give yourself fully to this mission. No competing missions. Work hard as unto the Lord. Yeah, earn a living. Use your profession to his praise. Christ changes your message. This is probably the the biggest thing we see with Saul. In verses 20 and 22, it's very clear. His message immediately shifted. His declaration in verse 20 is that Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 22, he's proving that Jesus is the Christ. Saul's message has radically changed. You know, up until he met Christ, he had rejected the teachings of Jesus And all those belonging to the way he was punishing. But Saul was wrecked by the gospel. 
He was wrecked when he met the risen Lord Jesus. He no longer told people how to be good. I want you to hear this. This is this is massive. Saul no longer preached how to be good. He pointed to them to the one who is perfectly good. That's a one degree difference in the gospel. And I would tell you that many churches today, if you go to many churches that presume to be gospel preaching churches, you're going to sit in and hear a preacher load heavy guilt on you of what you need to do, what you need to do, what you need to do. And what I'm telling you today is that Paul was converted from that legalistic mentality that you can actually do something to make yourself right. What he says is it's no longer about how you can be good. It's about him who is good. It's Jesus. Look to Jesus. Don't trust in your own ability to work and do. Saul says, that's who I've been all my life. And all of that is rubbish. Now I look to Christ. He no longer told people how to be good. He pointed them to the one who is good. In Romans 3, that's going to be his message. He says, no one is good. No one No, not one. If you didn't get it the first two times, he said it a third time. No one is good. And the point of that weighty message is to put you in proper perspective, to put you on your knees and go, well, what do you you mean I'm not good? What what do you mean I'm not good? I'm never going to be good. What are you saying? And then Saul says, yes, that's true. Now look to Christ. The message of the gospel is that no one is good but Jesus. His perfect goodness is offered to you freely through his death. And at the cross, Jesus makes the greatest trade ever. He took our guilt and offers us his righteousness. It is a free gift of grace. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't work your way to it. You receive as a needy, helpless, helpless, desperate person. Through his resurrection, Jesus validated himself as the son of God. And his promises carry weight. And so do his commands. When Paul preached to the Corinthians. He told them, Jesus is not dead. He appeared to me. And he called me into his service. I have nothing to say to you except Jesus Christ And him crucified. That's the hope of the gospel. And Saul says, because I'm telling you that I'm keeping the message super simple. He's like, I've got all this knowledge, but I'm not telling you any of that. Let me just keep it simple for you. The hope is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he elaborates in first Corinthians two, verse five, by saying, I don't want you to lean on my wisdom, but on the power of God in the grace of Christ. Christ changes your message. Jesus is our only hope. He's our only hope. So what we've seen in Saul is that Christ changes our mindset. It's not about me being great. He's great. We've seen that Christ 
changes our mission. He takes us from one team to another and he wants us to own the mission of being his witnesses. That's the reason we have the Holy Spirit. And then Christ changes our message. So let me give you a few takeaways really quickly. Jesus is powerful to save even his worst enemies. This is good news, y'all. And it's good news because I was one. Here's the here's the beauty of the gospel. It's one of the reasons I love celebrate recovery so much is because we don't call people to clean up their act and then come to Jesus. That would be like cleaning the fish before you catch them. We don't call people to clean up and then come to Christ. We say, come just as you are. Because we trust the saving power of Christ is sufficient to save and sanctify. There is no heart Jesus cannot conquer. No life he cannot change. No past he cannot forgive. Jesus saves his worst enemies. Now the shocking reality, and this is the second takeaway, is that you were one. Mm. 1 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, he gives this long list of people who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. A long list of all these sinful people who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says to them, I love this phrase, and such were you. Here's the takeaway. I was an enemy of God. But God's grace knocked me off my path. I was blind, but now I see. And I'm still a work in progress. I still need the gospel every day. I still have to trust in Christ. I still have to every morning get up and say, it's not about me being great. He's great. God, give us grace filled vision. Think about Ananias for just a moment. You know, he had great difficulty in realizing that God was rescuing the one who had come to ruin them. Let's don't underestimate the grace of God by underestimating our own desperate need for it. Apart from God's mercy and grace, I am Christ's worst enemy. And thirdly, last takeaway. This is beautiful. I hope this is hope for you today. No one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. We are never too sinful to be beyond the rescue of grace. This is the reason, church, that we go. It's the reason that we send. It's the reason we give. It's the reason we pray. It's the reason why we link arms with mission partners around the world. It's because no one, no one is beyond the reach of our merciful, gracious Christ. And we want everyone to see Christ as the risen Lord. The resurrected Jesus calling all people to turn from sin and trust in him, calling you to leave your own mission, to abandon your own mindset. Calling us all to not settle for just being close to the truth, but to see Jesus as the truth, the way, the truth and the life.
to abandon everything else, to know and trust and love him. Saul met Jesus. Jesus wrecked Saul. Saul's plans, Saul's knowledge, Saul's mission, Saul's message, all of it wrecked by the transforming power of Jesus. Jesus changes people. It is not possible to be saved by the grace of Christ and walk away unchanged. Saul was radically transformed by Jesus. Are you? Has your mindset changed? Has your mission changed? Has your message changed? The call is the same to all of us, believer and unbeliever alike. Trust Christ today. He will save you from you.